0: you are listening to leaders and legends a podcast featuring some of indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state our communities and us join us as we discuss their imprint on our history leaders and legends is brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations media relations public outreach crisis communications and digital photography My name is Robert Bain, principal of Veteran Strategies, former deputy chief of staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and communications director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, The McGinley Golden Ace Inn and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Michael Browning. And on the list of people who have made a difference in this city for the last several decades, he is at the top, if not the very top. He personifies what it takes to build a great city, build a great neighborhood, and build a great team. Very few people work across the aisle and across lines and build a better coalition than Michael Browning. We're very happy to have you here. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you very much. I'm flattered. <laughs> well, we're flattered that you would take some time to talk to us a little bit. Uh, the the theme, for lack of a better term, of the podcast is how people came together to build an Indianapolis that, quite frankly, didn't exist 50 years ago. And all cities transform one way or another. But Indianapolis particularly has changed uh, Tell us a little bit about where you're from originally and your career up until the time that you hit Indianapolis for the last 50 or so years. Um, I was born and raised
1: in Detroit, Michigan. Went to grade school, high school there. Um, my father had a, a iron ore steamship lines on the Great Lakes that was headquartered in Detroit. He owned an amusement park there, a couple of other businesses. I was one of seven children. My father was one of 13 children. Um, My mother was one of three. Uh, Interestingly, when I grew up, even with all those children, from the time I was born, my grandparents lived in the same house that I did. Oh, really? I grew up thinking... That everybody grew up with their parents
0: and their grandparents. Did your grandparents are that were they first generation coming over to the United States? Um, my grandparents were. Um, they came. My from, parents were Ireland. Came from Ireland.
1: Yes, in my twenty three and Me DNA test, that was eighty eight percent Irish.
0: <laughs> I, I, I could have told them that without paying the
1: hundred bucks. But
0: has that been confirmed by the McGinley Golden Aids and <laughs> I don't know various other Hibernians <laughs> the.
1: Um, eight percent Italian, which did surprise me.
0: So. <laughs> you were lucky enough to go to a pretty darn good college. Yes, I
1: went to uh, Notre Dame. Very fortunate. Um, and um, um majored in finance. Uh, graduated in '68.
0: Great class. Great, great friends there. Um, That's not a bad time to be at Notre Dame. There was a fellow who arrived in 64 mm-hmm. who changed things quite a bit. Were you on campus when Era Parsegian became coach? Um, well, I'm, I'm sure it was
1: part of it, but he and I came at the same time, so I, <laughs> I know that. <laughs> who, who recruited whom? <laughs> the Era came, he got recruited really in the winter before, and when— um, but most of his recruits from that, he, the recruiting period was shorter back then, and, and uh, but in '64 when I entered, that was the year of John Heward, a Heisman Trophy winner, Jack Snow, uh, John Carroll, just a, a a great list of guys that that year won.
0: They went nine zero and one and. Won the national title in one of the polls. They were nine and zero and went to the Coliseum and were winning. And there was an injury and they lost twenty to seventeen. it was a holding penalty.
1: <laughs> yes, there they was said a Bob Meeker penalty. held the guy at the one inch line,
0: <laughs> an like an offensive tackle. Now, what is this? <laughs> this is crazy. Is is that a worse call than the clipping call against the Rocket in the Orange Bowl <laughs> against Colorado? No,
1: <laughs> that was, was worse.
0: The it, clipping call that negated the uh, yeah, punt return by Rocket Ishmael in the uh, mm. in the Orange Bowl against Colorado. Uh, that was a great year. It was a great time in '66. Notre Dame wins the national championship, uh, punctuated by the ten ten tie against Michigan State, and then the absolute obliteration of USC. I believe in the Coliseum was fifty one to nothing or something terrible like mm. that. I mean something great, but yeah. a real beating.
1: The 10-10 tie was in um, 1966, Mm -hmm. and that happened in East Lansing. Um, And um, um, I was there. You were in East Lansing for that game? It was very cold. And at the time, it didn't seem that unusual that we didn't – Go for the home run ball, if you will. it was very cold, very windy um, It never occurred to me that we were settling or going for the tie until after the game was over, and you started reading the newspapers and and uh listening to t v media wasn't quite so fast back in nineteen sixty six but when you were there you you didn't think of it like that
0: well, and Notre Dame was losing ten nothing came back and mm. tied it. But they lost their best player getting off the train. The um, did you know ter- that player? Well, do you know a lot of the football ter- players?
1: Yes, with well,
0: t- Terry Hanratty, who was mm-hmm.
1: supposed to be the starting quarterback in that game, uh, didn't. And um, let's see who start uh, Coley O'Brien. Coley O'Brien, mm-hmm. he he played quarterback in that game, and but it was. It was a great ball game. Michigan State had a fantastic defense. Bubba George Smith. George Webster and Bubba Smith. Mm-hmm. They were two very big
0: names. Uh, what was it like? I mean, Notre Dame football, and, and obviously the school was more about than about football. But mm-hmm. but at the time, in the late '60s, Notre Dame was was pretty much. I think it's fair to say the only national program. Whether you listen to Lindsey Nielsen re- redo the games and the highlights every mm-hmm. year, but it was a different time for a school that that overcame a lot of prejudice throughout the country through its football program. And you were there for its renaissance, you and ERA together. (laughs) What was that like?
1: When you were as young as I was, you didn't appreciate what it meant historically. Um, Obviously, I was Catholic, grew up Catholic, but the idea that there was some... Uh, that Catholics were somehow discriminated against. That that went right over my head. I had no idea of that until after I got to Notre Dame and you start to hear about some of the history and and uh, uh, s- stories about the Irish in Boston and in New York in particular, stories about Notre Dame football being Irish and stories about Newt Rockne and Frank Leahy and uh, – People who held grudges against the university for reasons that are beyond me, Michigan. Uh, but you, the, uh yes. <laughs> but um, uh, I didn't know that when I went to school there.
0: And you were a you were a, a kid, a teenager, mm-hmm. perhaps maybe just on the cusp mm. when John F. Kennedy wins the presidency in '60. As an Irish Catholic kid. What did that mean to you? What did it mean to your parents and grandparents? It
1: was, uh, it was huge in my household. It was my grandparents, again, who lived there. They were Irish. Uh, and for everybody was terribly surprised, <laughs> truly surprised. Nobody thought he was going to win. Um, I was a junior in high school. Uh, and we got a day off because he won. I thought that was, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was remarkable. The, um, um, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was a junior in high school when he died. When he died. Yes, that was, that was terrible. That's all we talked about for a week. There was a couple of days off there, and we all, all we did was watch TV and watch Ruby shoot <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald and. Uh, I'm I'm, watching bre- I'm eating breakfast watching this on TV, and was just it was amazing.
0: We, are, um, we try not to date these podcasts because, mm. because they don't get posted in the order <laughs> that they are recorded. Mm. But we are here on November 21st. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow is the anniversary, and I believe you was shot on a Friday, and mm-hmm. tomorrow is Friday, the 22nd.: Yes. Where were you? You were in school and they stopped school? Talk about how they you got the news. The uh, I had
1: um, I was out of class, and um, somebody came down the hallway. I can't tell you who, and said they had just heard that. Well, there weren't TVs around high schools then, and everybody headed for radios, and I went out to somebody's car to listen on the radio but again it wasn't like today and you had a announcer interrupt what he was doing to say we've just gotten some terrible news but they didn't report on it they said we'll be back when we have something else to share with you sure um so that's how i heard now when i got home turned on cbs and walter cronkite and they were full-time on the air and i
0: don't think i left the tv for three days yeah because the funeral was it was friday and then funeral that sunday as i recall correct it was very
1: quick and it was very quick, quick. I, don't, was it, I don't i don't remember i was thinking it was another day but I, I, it doesn't matter it's sure. um because uh, we had the day of of jack ruby and lee harvey oswald and um, we had a day of the Rotunda and then the Arlington, of course. And
0: You've it, been to the grave, I'm assuming?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, when I was in the Army, I was stationed in Washington, D.C. And my first assignment, not very long, but was at the Old Guard, the 3rd Infantry, and in,
0: which was stationed at Arlington National Cemetery in Fort Myer. So a, it's a remarkable... If you have not seen the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, you have missed a particular piece of Americana, for lack of a better term, and and discipline. It's a remarkable ceremony. Yes, it is. After graduating from Notre Dame, you went someplace else for a while. Where would that be? um, On Sunday, I think
1: June 4th, Um, I graduated on the main quad at Notre Dame, and when it was all finished and I had my diploma, my mother handed me my draft notice, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it was—I had to be at um, what they call the AFE's office. Mm -hmm. Um, But in Chicago, even though I lived in Detroit— but I was in South Bend, and they wanted you soon. And Did
0: you, you did a draft notice? Were you part of the lottery then? Did they have a lottery not, number that lottery hadn't then. happened yet? That hadn't happened yet. So I went to Chicago, was at friend's
1: house, and that was the night of the California primary. I watched Bob Kennedy um, give his – Um, acceptance speech of winning the California primary. I went to bed because I had to be at the draft board at six o'clock the next morning. Got up, was driving downtown kind of channel switching. And I heard the end of something about Kennedy shot. And I wasn't thinking about Bobby at all. I was thinking that's an odd thing to be talking about at five o'clock in the morning, talking about
0: John Kennedy. Yeah. In June mm -hmm. when, when Kennedy was shot in November, JFK,
1: Mm -hmm so eventually I went back to try and find the station and that was the first time that I had heard Bobby had been shot uh, when we got to the AFE station there were a couple hundred guys there and you could have heard a pin drop I was very surprised in that over the microphones in the, in the uh, draft board they piped the radio in and everybody listened to it all day long and in a place where you would have expected a lot of hustle and bustle. Sure.
0: Again, you could have heard a pin drop all day long, people just listening. Well, we did a podcast with Mike Riley, Mm -hmm. whom you may know, who was the uh, director of the 1968 Robert F. Kennedy campaign here in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And he talked a lot about uh, that night in June and a lot of other things. Uh, Were you someone who was active politically at the time. It was a heady times for everybody in the country, especially college campuses. Mm -hmm. And Robert Kennedy clearly was uh, someone who was, I think even his biggest critic would say was magnetic and, and a Mm -hmm. personality that just created enthusiasm. He spoke at Notre Dame during the campaign. And were you there? uh, I was there. He spoke at step and center. I,
1: I remember borrowing a car from one of the senior vice presidents at Chrysler Corporation, where I was an intern in the summer, because we needed a convertible for Kennedy and went up and got it, drove it down. He rode on this in the big parade, to Steppen Center. By the time the parade was all over with, probably had a thousand dollars worth of body damage on it <laughs> from people sitting on the trunk and sitting on the hood. It got a little bit out of control, and I was I thought, where? How am I going to possibly pay for this? And uh, but when I gave him the car back, he was more
0: understanding than I would have been. But, so, uh, Did you get a chance to meet him or shake his hand? Talk to him? Yeah, ask oh, yeah.
1: Question. Um, I still have. Um, a couple pictures of him. Um, I have some good friends that we were all very engaged in his campaign. Uh, went to Mississippi, a lot of time in Indiana. We thought we were heavily engaged. We probably weren't. Sure. Mostly get out the vote and
0: voter registration kind of work. So when he won the May primary in May of '68, mm-hmm. Did you have a feeling that you would just work for the next President of the United States? Riley says uh, he thinks Riley said at our podcast he believes Kennedy would have not won the nomination and he mm-hmm. believes Kennedy would have beaten Nixon in sixty eight
1: the I didn't think he was not after the Indiana primary or. After the Indiana primary, I still was not of the belief he was going to be the Democratic nominee. There was still a lot of hard feelings. Uh, Lyndon Johnson clearly didn't like clearly Bobby Kennedy. And um, Humphrey seemed like the heir apparent even then. Had the establishment backing, clearly. And um, – you know, those were the days of very moderate Democrats, the Scoop Jacksons of the world, and it, it was it was a just a different
0: time. Um, Scoop Jackson, the senator from Washington, who was a noted Cold War warrior mm-hmm. and protector of the Jewish population in the Soviet Union.
1: The it so I didn't after the California primary, um, then I had hope. Uh, people didn't think of california in 1968 like they think of it today it wasn't nearly so liberal it was liberal but it wasn't off the charts liberal like ronald reagan was governor at the time so it's um so i didn't i wasn't there yet that he was going to be the next president
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel, and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. On the cusp of your service overseas in vietnam the assassination of robert f kennedy happened did you get a sense of what you were fighting for overseas when so much of the country was in flames um not until you got there
1: um i worked in washington dc for a year before i went to vietnam um I worked in Saigon at MACV Command in in Vietnam, and gives you an entirely different perspective uh, of of war. Uh, one of my bucket list items was to um, go to France and go see. Omaha Beach and, sure. and uh, see the cemetery and um, the reason I wanted to do that sort of going back to your question is that outside of my window at Thompson Air Force Base was a place where when people died and they put them in the body bags. They literally stacked them kind of in a pyramid. Ten guys on the first row, nine guys on the second row, and they would make these pyramids, and a C 131 every day would fly them back to the US. That changes your perspective about everything. So even if you thought this was not a war we should be in, a war that you could under, could not understand why we were doing this, why guys were dying like that when you're there, you temper that emotion and you're doing your best to win you're doing your best to help the guys that are there, your best to make sure nobody else dies uh so it's a um, it's it's just very different uh when you're there. And when you come back, you can fall back into, we we shouldn't be doing this, but it's for an entirely different reason. Before I went, it was all political and it was all becoming part of a movement, if you will. And yes, this is silly. Once you've been there, you don't feel that way anymore. So when you come back, you want the war to end because you don't want one more American to die being there fighting for. They had you believing it was sort of the North versus the South, and that's just not the case. Um, There were as many people in South Vietnam that didn't want the Americans there and wanted a singular country. Um, By day, they acted as though they were on our side, and by night, they weren't.
0: It was a country of extreme poverty. And we did a podcast with Medal of Honor recipient Sammy Davis. I'm guessing you know him or have met him. Oh, he is, yeah. And he said a lot of, of the exact same thing, if I recall. Chris, you correct me if I'm wrong, where it's like, look, whatever you think of the war, when you're there and you're in the trenches or you're in the helicopter, you're really just caring about the guy next to you. And how can I help my team and my squad and my platoon and my battle brothers? And all that other stuff just didn't matter. Let's just get out alive. And is is it fair to say that's kind of what you were just describing? That's exactly it. Uh, And I remember
1: reading this story one time. um, Senator Proxmire from Wisconsin had uh, just left Vietnam, and he was back testifying or speaking in front of the Senate and said he had been there and found out that we were dropping bombs in Cambodia. And he was sort of outraged about it. And I got thinking, well, first of all, I could have asked anyone of 50,000 guys and they'd have been happy to tell them <laughs> that we were dropping bombs. It in wasn't Cambodia. a secret. It definitely wasn't a secret. And secondly, we did that because when the B 52s came back and when the bombing runs were over, you couldn't land at Tonsunut with bombs on board, so they would drop them. And the, quote, Ho Chi Minh Trail came down through Cambodia and uh, it, it was um, – nobody knew quite where they were, but that's where we dropped them. Uh could have dropped them in the Gulf of Tonkin, but we didn't. And But I, I, at the time, I got thinking, what? The spin on this is so different than what actually happened. you um it was pretty easy to become cynical and sarcastic about the whole political atmosphere
0: when did once you leave you're there, Vietnam Seventies,
1: uh, June of seventy yeah June of seventy so you were there 70, when
0: 90. Nixon announced the incursion into Cambodia. That led um, to the protests that eventually led to the yeah. Kent State shooting.
1: And yeah, no, I, w- I went to a place called Parrot's Beak, which is exactly it's in Vietnam, but it might as well be in Cambodia, and that's where the operation was
0: run from. And um, so, yes, I was there. You know, my son, uh, I have a son who's 30 years old, and he's done, uh, he's 11, bang, bang. Or he was before he got out. 11 Bravo combat mm-hmm. infantryman.
1: He did too. <laughs> Sound familiar? I was 11 Bravo. <laughs> I didn't end up doing that, but that was my MOS when I got drafted.
0: And he uh, did a couple of tours in Afghanistan. And one of the things that he said to me, and then we'll move on, is uh, you don't talk to him much while he's there, obviously. And everybody has to be guarded. But subsequent, it's like, did you feel like you were doing something over there? And one of the things that he said was, you know, I just don't know. Is that a feeling that you had? Like, I'm here risking my life. And why am I here and not in graduate school or back on the block or what any of the other things you could do? You mentioned just a few seconds ago that didn't necessarily want you there. Did you really get that sense? Like, leave Americans, leave us alone.
1: Saigon was a little different than most places, so um, there was money in Saigon to be made. There was a, a pretty robust economy there, so you, you didn't get that feeling. Now, I had a, what they call the San who took care of my clothes and sort of made, if you will, and, um, so she would tell me how what the real world was like, but absent her, I don't think i I would have known that, nor felt it when if you saw Good Morning Vietnam and the Robin Williams movie and that whole underlying current that again that by day they were for you and by night they were against you, and had the one guy that betrayed him and I believe there was a lot of that going on but when you're there I didn't I didn't think that and if if you were talking about why am I here and I'd rather be home in graduate school you were probably on R&R or you were in a bar at Cameron Bay where mm-hmm. you you were kind of away from the war for a while you that, that didn't happen on a you didn't get out of the mess hall and start talking like that cuz there were serious things going on, and you just didn't
0: have that kind of conversation. Last question before we bring you back to mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. Is there a, and we asked uh, Sergeant Davis this, is there a Vietnam War movie that, in your mind, gets it right?
1: Um, well, Deer Hunter was a combination of all of the worst. Um, there was also a movie called We Were Soldiers in, Once and Young um, that um, while that book got written and that may have in fact been an actual event and uh, when you talk to people um Particularly Moore, who, Harold Moore, who, General it, Moore, who, who wrote it, um, that probably did happen. But those, most of us didn't go to Vietnam and participate in that kind of a battle. Uh, but you'd hear stories like that. But m- most of it was—I um, don't want to say day to day, but the, yes, there was some shooting. Then either you retreated or they went away. It, the the three day battles, if you will, or two day battles. When those were going on, you knew about them. They, they didn't usually last as long as the TVs and the movie shows would have you think. It was, it was, um, it was drudgery out there and. Uh, if you were really engaged four out of the 7 days that was a lot
0: well that that would yes that would yeah. be a lot considering what cuz what the outcome yeah. of failure is yeah. you left vietnam you said in 1970 mm-hmm. so you're back in the united states talk a little bit about what you did when you come came back and then perhaps if you want to uh, just give us your thoughts on how you felt when you were at home watching television in the coverage of the evacuation of Saigon and the end of the war. Um,
1: I, uh, for me, once we had the evacuation, it was already a foregone conclusion and I, I it wasn't an emotional scene for me it was just get out of there let's get this done um i thought the pows coming home was a much more uh cathartic moment than the than the airlift out of saigon um the for me the biggest um Memory I have is when I came back uh, soldiers were not treated the same way they are today. Nobody
0: said thank you for your service which is a which is a scene in that movie we were soldiers that's heartbreaking at the end
1: oh that's um, if you were a soldier and you were in uniform and you were traveling,
0: you felt it that's And not in the way that soldiers feel it today. No. People are much
1: more cognizant today when a guy goes to Afghanistan or a guy goes to Syria or a guy's going to someplace in the Middle East and how awful an assignment that is. And that truly is for reasons that are
0: inexplicable to me. And... Do you think the draft, being drafted as opposed to volunteering has anything to do with it? In other words, everyone who served overseas post 9-11 has volunteered for the military, mm-hmm. whereas you stated on the day you graduated, here's your induction notice. Once
1: you were in that whole U.S. versus R.A. designation, that goes away, it, at least when you're overseas. Nobody talks about that. Nobody even... Uh, that's not an issue you're a part of the team can you shoot and, straight do you have my back um, having a bad attitude when you're in Vietnam about the war uh, gets you an assignment where you can't possibly do something that's going to get somebody else hurt you're in the garbage dump mm. uh, it's you're in a place where uh,
0: you're out of circulation if you will you mentioned the emotions, and then we'll talk about Indianapolis for the rest of the podcast. I'm assuming you have been. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but what was it like when you walked down the sidewalk where the wall is? It again. I was.
1: Um, it isn't what I expected, and it was much. It had a much bigger impact than I expected. Um, and I, I, having lived in Washington before there was a wall and seen all the monuments, I expected another monument. And yes, I'd seen a picture where it was black. But when you saw it in the picture... And it was controversial when it first came. was first When create, you it, go there the first time and you've been and you see all those guys' names and you the black aspect of it was very... Very emotional, um, and that—that that is an emotion and a memory that I still have. Uh, most of them, I've been able to close that book, move on to a different chapter. I remember when Governor Kernan pressed me really hard to go to on a State Department POW trip back to North Vietnam. And I said, Joe, I got no demons, <laughs> and, I, uh, and I don't want to go back there and and um,
0: pick it up again. And I I didn't go with him. I was going to ask you if you had gone back, because a lot of folks have. And we were talking about former Governor Joe Kernan, who uh, was a POW in Vietnam. Actually, uh, I have his POW bracelet, and I wear it quite frequently, and I can tell you the date. He became a POW was May 7th 1972 and he's a remarkable remarkable Hoosier veteran and legend
1: when you're over there and you see pictures of planes that get shot down like that's why he was a POW it's amazing to me any pilot whether he went out in a helicopter in a parachute or not that any of them lived there was no place to
0: land there was it was it was a mess and the ones who got shot down and had to eject over over Hanoi or whatever, which I think is was John McCain, I think he ejected over Hanoi. I could be wrong, but and then they got just abused, for lack of a better term. Most of those guys got shot. <laughs> I know that
1: obviously some live, but I'd say more got shot than went to a POW camp.
0: Well, before we move on to Indianapolis, we can't thank you enough for your service.
1: Thank you. That's-
0: when did you move to Indianapolis? In 1976. What brought you here?
1: I worked for a construction company in South Bend, Hickey Construction Company, and on their board of directors was Bob Welch. Also on that board of directors
0: was Eric Parsegian. Oh, you're kidding. Did not Welch go to Notre Dame? Yes. Mm-hmm. Welch. Bob Welch was a very, very prominent Indianapolis businessman who was a uh, Cited by many, has been cited by many as one of the folks who could work across the aisle. He actually ran against uh, Bill Hudnut for mayor and lost and then they continued to work together and unfortunately he was killed with several others in a plane crash about twenty-five or so years ago.
1: It was a very close election. It's uh I was there and actually didn't appreciate how close it was until somebody <laughs> showed me recently, but it's
0: it's um so Did he become a little bit of a mentor to you, Bob Welch?
1: Uh, yes uh i was um I didn't have any intention of staying here. The company I worked for kind of lent him lent me to him while he was engaged in some political activity, and I thought that I would go back or go somewhere um Indianapolis was not the kind of town I pictured myself living in and growing up. I'd lived in Chicago. I'd lived in Detroit. I'd lived in Washington, D.C. I'd lived in South Bend, yes, but I, uh, I just didn't expect to stay here.
0: But I got lucky. And When did you start your own company, and what made you decide, you know what, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? Browning Investments is one of the singularly mm. successful companies in Indianapolis mm. and has been for decades, mm. mostly because of Bob Gallant and his leadership, <laughs> we should mention. <laughs> but what made you decide to um, strike out on your own? It's not an easy decision.
1: Um, Bob had had some financial difficulties related to the World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1980. I think it was 1980, maybe 81. No, nah, I not Maybe you're right. Maybe it was after that. But I I bought R. V. Welch investments from Bob in nineteen eighty 1980 or nineteen eighty one. And we were very small then.
0: And um I didn't know that. I didn't um, know that you that Browning Investments was Yes, it's it's uh, in fact I kept that name
1: for a long time before I changed it to Browning. Um I don't know why, but I, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Um, I was fortunate in that I had some financial backing from Riley Industries, and um, we built a lot of office product up on North Meridian, a couple of the buildings downtown, and- um, You've built some very prominent buildings um, downtown. Been very lucky. so. Um, 300 North Meridian and Capital Center. Capital Center is over 600,000 square feet. That's rarefied air in Indianapolis. Pan Am Plaza is that correct? The Pan, the Pan Am building. Pan Am Plaza. That was more of a community effort. Wouldn't make any money doing that. We, we, the um, uh, endowment was very in help, helpful in building Pan Am Plaza, not the building itself. Um, the sports corp was actually the owner of the office building Pan Am Plaza and, and the garage and um so i was it i was lucky enough to be involved in that it financially had a bad ending or we thought it had a bad ending and then it turned out to be very good for the sports corporation and is the principal the sports corp Um, has a very good reserve and essentially from the office building in the plaza.
0: We did a podcast with Ryan Vaughn, the current Mm -hmm. president of the sports Corp, And I want to ask you about sports for just a second in a minute. But anyone who knows you knows that your civic resume is without peer. You're up there. And I say this admiringly with Jim Morris, with Bill Mays, with Yvonne Shaheen, with my guy P.E. McAllister and those who have stepped forward beyond their corporate responsibilities and taken on a civic role. You are involved in the Visit Indy organization on their board, the Sports Corp. You were heavily involved in in the Pan Am Games and the sports festival that happened in 82. Assess that... <clears throat> genre of activity when it comes to the difference between the Indianapolis you never thought that you would stay in and the Indianapolis you currently live in? Um,
1: That answer could be a very long magazine article. I don't know if I can answer that in five minutes. But uh, first, uh, from at least from where I was, um Jim Morris is without peer in that regard. He was the guy who went out and made it happen. Now uh he had a lot of I mean he Dick Luger was the mayor and allowed Jim to go out and, and um work on behalf of the city to get it started. And then Jim went to Lilly Endowment and uh, Tom Lake, who was president of Lilly Endowment. Then, without him, Jim didn't have the ability to get done what he got done.
0: Lilly Endowment was a prime funder of the building of the Hoosier Dome.
1: Yes, although it's you know there was a there was a tax that was um, the big part of the money, but. I, You have to admire the endowment in that virtually every project they ever did, they wanted public money in it. They wanted government money in it before they would put some money in it. And while there's probably some exceptions, almost everything I worked on, that's what I saw. And they were generally the last money in, not the first money. In. You, knew, <laughs> you knew you had to go out and raise some money and you had to put some things together and you had to get the community on board before they were helpful.
0: If I had told you in the mid-1970s, as you're in Indianapolis wondering perhaps what the hell you're doing here mm-hmm. and where can I, when can I go back to a big city, if I had told you then – that Indianapolis was going to throw the watershed seminal most highly praised Super Bowl in the history of the NFL you would have said
1: no <laughs> <laughs> i might not have, i might not have answered the question because certainly it was so preposterous <laughs>
0: um but it um how proud of Indianapolis were you when that Super Bowl came off the way it did.
1: Uh, the, the key to Indianapolis's success for most of the events that occurred in the early years was the volute- volunteer core of the city. That's where the credit really goes. When you look at the number of volunteers at the National Sports Festival, our very first event, the number of volunteers at the Pan Am Games, and then you go to the 400 or 500 events we've had since, whether they're final fours or whether they're for a ping pong championship
0: that you don't remember. That's the key. And that's been said multiple times on on these podcasts, whether it's Mark Miles or Jim Morris, or David mm-hmm. Frick, mm-hmm. who appeared with us and was phenomenal. Allison Malangton, Greg mm-hmm. Ballard. They've all said the same thing. it's There are headlines and then there are the people who make the headlines happen.
1: So you, what it took to make it happen, you couldn't have thought of. So when it was a guy named Larry Conrad who was heavily engaged in the opening ceremonies of the National Sports Festival, and he was the guy that was kept talking about we had to have more volunteers for this, had and more had more volunteers for that. Pretty soon we had a volunteer corps that was bigger than the number of athletes we had coming. <laughs> um, but it changed how we did everything. And uh, it, it truly w- was the difference in making Indianapolis work as it relates to those kinds of events.
0: One of the things that's come out in the podcast, which which my only experience with was that I had to move out of my barracks at Fort Ben Harrison because I was <laughs> there at the time, and that's 1987, the the Pan Am Games. Uh, we had Mark Miles on, who was mm-hmm. kind of running the Pan Am Games, and we've actually mm-hmm. uh, reached out and Ted Boehm, who was the overall mm-hmm. head for Indianapolis, has agreed to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast, but. Uh, Mark said this, and so did Bill Benner, someone I know Mm -hmm. you know who was a podcast guest, Mm -hmm. that the Pan Am Games showed the world that Indianapolis could play globally when it comes to sports, sporting events, and putting on something, in this case, very short notice. Mm -hmm. What is your recollection of the Pan Am Games, and do you agree with that statement? Uh, Yes. Um,
1: And... um we we hosted a multi-sport multilingual um, uh, male and female event um, that required 30 some venues and again on short notice and all with volunteers uh, and we I don't know how big Mark's staff was that was actually getting paid, but it was very few people. The rest of it was all done by volunteers. Uh, So if that didn't show people, well, it did, because we would then make bids on other events going forward, and people believed that we were real. When you think about 2012, hosting the Super Bowl, And you look at the bid and what it took to get the owners to say, first of all, we're going to go to a northern city. Exactly. And secondly, um, do they have the capacity to do this? Do they have the hotel space? Do they have the common area space? Um, We had our resume got us to the table. The people that were there speaking on our behalf and talking to owners about why this could be true, they probably took us over the goal line. But that resume was very significant. It's Kind of what you pointed out about the Super Bowl, to this day, most times the Final Four is in Indianapolis. The media coverage all say the same thing. This is the best venue for the Final Four there is. Every time we come here, it's fantastic. It's walkable. It's the people are so friendly, um, and that resonated with the NFL owners.
0: Several months ago in, in 2019, and we brought this up in the first series of podcasts, but Mike Greenberg, the famous uh, sure. ESPN sports host, tweeted, Indianapolis is the best big-game city in the country. Is I remember that. It was um, (laughs) And you look at the events that are coming and a lot of folks, and, and I'm not judging them because I can understand their, their worldview, but say there's too much emphasis on sports, too much done for downtown, too much done for tourism as someone who's been involved in dozens and dozens of events stretching back four decades, almost five decades now in a position of leadership. Mm-hmm. What do you say to someone who makes that point? I love it when people say that, <laughs> but
1: let me, let me parse it a little bit. First of all, tourism is a very significant industry for Indianapolis. There are some, uh, I, th- I think the number's close to 60,000 people engaged full-time in the tourism industry whether it's in the hotels whether it's in the restaurants whether it's in the convention centers whether it's at the airport and the piece that's associated with that there's uh, that's a business that deserves uh, our attention and so I'd sort of like to separate that away from the events Uh, back in Uh, the late 70s, when our population was in the six, maybe 700,000, we visited with the top 20 employers in Indianapolis and asked them what the city needed to do to make it better for them. And the overwhelming answer was, we have a very hard time recruiting people to come and live in Indianapolis and work for our company. So the the sporting movement if you will had nothing to do with sports we were looking for um a way to promote indianapolis as a quality of life opportunity for families as a place to live as a place to um where you could participate in things that maybe you couldn't participate in in, in other communities and the, this was a Jim Moore strategy that extended to all of our not-for-profit institutions, extended to Connor Prairie, extended to the Children's Museum, to the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Uh, and out of that came an idea that really started with the Clay Court Championship, make the event a better event. And it worked. So then we tried to find two other events that would work. And that led to the National Sports Festival, uh, which, you know, here we are today. Now we're going to host the college football playoff, which is sort of mind-boggling when you think about it. <laughs> and the NBA All-Star Game and the Final Four uh, in 2021, those three events. The It was about putting Indianapolis on the map so that when people came here, they would want to stay. So here we are 40 years later, and the problem companies have now is that people don't want to transfer. <laughs> they're like me. I, I I love this town. I can't think of a better place to raise a family. And well wouldn't pertain to me i would never agree to a transfer we see that a lot and that's a pretty remarkable happening in call it two generations so uh, i don't agree at all that that was not a good thing for indianapolis tom like used to say you can't be the
0: suburb of nothing And then Mayor Ballard, when I worked for him, was always like, look, we have to have young people who want to come here, stay here, have kids here, educate their kids here, and convince their kids to stay here.
1: The goal is still the same. If you don't have growth, you die on the vine.
0: Is this a true or false statement? Other cities throughout the United States, and perhaps the world, but let's focus, other cities throughout the United States would love for Indianapolis to have less emphasis on tourism and conventions.
1: That's true. Um, we're, um, we are, we are a very strong competitor. Uh, when I became chair of Visit Indy, I don't think we were doing 500,000 room nights. And now we're doing eight, 900,000 room nights and that's a big deal. Uh, so the the crew at Visit Indy is second to none in this country. They are very, very good at what they do.
0: And Leonard Hoops and Chris Gall have agreed to come on the podcast. I can't wait. Well, that's
1: good. That's good.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We end all podcasts with the same five questions. Michael, you ready? Sure. What was your first job?
1: I was a paper boy. (laughs) Delivered (laughs) delivered the Detroit news in the afternoon. Yeah.
0: I think Paperboy and Lawn Cutting are the uh, most popular ones, at least among the men.
1: When you're 12, that's <laughs> all you can do. <laughs>
0: Number two, what was your first concert? Uh,
1: my first concert, wow. Um, 19... Gee, I should, should be right at the top of my list. Um,
0: Did you ever see Bob Hope in Vietnam?
1: Uh no. Uh he he wouldn't come to Saigon. He was out. He was, in was the out bush. In, he was out in the hinterlands. Um the first concert. I think either Johnny Rivers or the Four Tops, maybe um In Detroit or at Notre Dame? In, uh Johnny Rivers at Notre Dame, the Four Tops in Indianapolis um the uh the temptations there's a lot of uh the motown sounds was founded in detroit and when when you say concert i don't it's not exactly how i saw them they were much smaller venues if you will
0: um but it was probably one of those groups if you could recommend any book for someone to read Gee. which book would you recommend I know you're a history buff.
1: Um, Well, only because I've just um, been to France. Uh, I read a bunch of Stephen Ambrose books, and um, it's... Whether you're reading about Vietnam or whether you're reading about World War II, reading a book of history about your fellow citizens who died, I think is a is a worthwhile endeavor. Um, um, I'll leave it at that because I can't come up with one that I think terrific, I would put my name on. Answer.
0: Not everyone I know can make it to Normandy. It's not the cheapest trip. I've, fortunately, I've been there, and you just... It's its beyond overwhelming. When you walk in
1: that cemetery, it
0: is not what you think. And it just... Wow. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Um, I would have... I almost went to the inauguration of John Kennedy. Um, I would have, I would have liked to have been there for that. I would have liked to have, uh, I would have liked to have been in Rome for the election of this Pope. I think he's, I think he's going to change um, the Catholic Church in a way that's long
0: overdue. Pope Francis. Hmm. Last question. A if, Jesuit, which is really surprising. So that's <laughs> question number five. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record to discuss anything, whom would you choose? Um, Colin Powell. Um... He's been mentioned more than once. Mm-hmm. Did you know him in Vietnam? No. Uh,
1: I just think he has a unique perspective that's not warped. Uh, he wasn't trying to build up a, a portfolio of things that he could talk about to sort of support his position. He was always good at taking a step back, and good or bad, he, was, he, he would say so um i thought bill clinton was a very good president i think he got a lot done for the country but he's so now that all the history books about him have been written and and all the revisions have occurred i don't know if you could ever have a the kind of conversation you'd like to have with um uh with a guy like that where you got you got the level set, if you
0: will. Uh, He's a history buff as well. Uh, we have, we cannot thank you enough for your time. Uh, we cannot thank you enough for everything that you have done, not only for the city but for the people of the city. And I can tell you, uh, one thing is true: if you want to get something done, if you want to build a coalition of people who will work selflessly to make Indianapolis a better place, a more attractive place. You have to call Michael Browning. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at VeteranStrategies.com.